Hey, Abu, why didn't you tell me this was a weirding podcast? The conversation ran short. And I also have a knife to your throat. (laughs) He'll cut my throat! (laughs) Back, you dogs! Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name's Leo. And Leo, today, we're going to focus on the character portion of our intro. Indeed, again. (laughs) Because we're talking all about Lady Jessica today. Yeah, most important woman in the universe. <laughs> yeah, really, though. Yeah, literally. <laughs> 50-something episodes later, we're finally uh, talking about Jessica. <laughs> and it's not random. Mm. We are actually, this is the first time mm-hmm. we had our patrons vote on what topic they wanted to hear most. Yeah. And Jessica won. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was a landslide victory, if I am remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks have both written into us to talk about Lady Jessica and do an episode about her, and in that poll that we ran for our patrons, which we run every month to help us pick the next deep dive topic, our patrons voted for Lady Jessica. So here we are. Today, we're going to break down everything you need to know about Lady Jessica, right. which, Leo, as it turns out, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. is a whole fucking lot. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so... Uh-huh. We decided to do something a little different with this character deep dive and break it up into two parts. Right. Now, today's episode is going to be about the life before Dune, her life before Dune, her earlier years, her role within the first book, and we'll talk about Rebecca Ferguson's portrayal in the Villeneuve movie. Right. To that end, spoiler warning, we will have spoilers from the first Dune book and the movie in today's episode. Right. The next episode, part two, Jessica, part two, is going to be the rest of the books, basically, the rest of uh, Frank's books. And that's going to be a deep, deep, deep dive into her legacy and how she kind of shaped so much of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. All the way through Chapter House Dune, through all six of those books. So that's coming in part two. But today, you can rest easy. Spoilers only for the first book and for the movie. Right. And of course, as always... Please send us your episode ideas. Today's episode is a result of those emails from listeners, along with that patron vote. Yeah. And just say hello by emailing us at gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. We may not get around to responding to your email for a while, because there are so many, but I promise we are reading every single thing you guys are writing, and uh, it's on the to-do list. We'll respond to you eventually. We promise. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I keep going to respond to emails, and then I write these, like, six-page emails. It's a problem. It's like our scripts really need to learn self-control. Another way you can support the show is by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash gomjabar. And by becoming a patron, you'll have access to our Discord, Mm -hmm. where you can chat with us directly, get all of our hot Dune memes that we're throwing at each other (laughs) constantly. And you'll also have access to our book club, where we are currently working our way through Dune Messiah. That's right. Also, huge shout-outs to our two Kwisatz Haderach-level patrons, Case Aiken and Nate Hyde. Hell yeah. Thank you 
to both of them so much for their generosity. But of course, our thanks also extends to all of our listeners, all of our patrons, everyone who shares and listens to the show week after week. It's because of you that we do it. Indeed. And last bit of housekeeping before we talk about Jessica. We also have a merch store. So check out gomjabarshop.com to get some sweet Dune swag. Yeah. We've got an enamel pen, some shirts, some cool stuff. Check it out. Definitely. Okay, let's get into the episode and talk about Jessica. Indeed. First and foremost, why talk about Jessica at all, right? (laughs) Right. The obvious answer here seems to be because you all voted for it. Right. And apparently this show is now a democracy, which is... (sighs) Gross. I don't know when that happened. I've been pushing for a tyranny since day one. I thought this was our authoritarian (laughs) rule, right? Like... I don't know when this suddenly became a democracy, but here we are. (laughs) Besides the democratically elected topic, Jessica herself is also such an important character in the book. Right. And Rebecca Ferguson's portrayal in the movie, at least within my sort of circle and friend group and extended friend group, has really piqued a lot of interest in who Lady Jessica is. Right. Especially with first-time Dune fans. I had a coworker. She went and saw Dune, doesn't know anything about it, basically only has ever talked to me about it, and texted me immediately after seeing the movie and was like, I loved Lady Jessica, what's her deal? And you're still explaining it weeks later, and still a long text thread. (laughs) Right, right. It's a great point. She really is something that draws the eye and draws the mind, the curious mind. Yeah. The Dune Encyclopedia has this quote, and I think this is great. Quote, Lady Jessica is the most important woman in Dune's lengthy history. End quote. Wow. Yeah. Bold claim. But. But. You know, defensible. Yeah, I agree. I think it makes perfect sense. And by the end of today's episode, and especially into part two, if it's not immediately clear to you why, it will be more so by the end of this episode. Definitely. Definitely. Okay, so we're going to take Jessica's life As chronologically as we can, we're going to start off by talking about Jessica's early years. What was her childhood like? What was her training like? Where was she born? Where did she grow up? And how did she meet Duke Leto? Basically, all of the things that happened before the pages of Dune. Then we'll dive into some of the more significant events of Dune itself when it comes to Jessica's character in particular. And then we will wrap up the episode with a discussion of our thoughts on Rebecca Ferguson's portrayal and her character in Danny Villeneuve's blockbuster film. Indeed. So let's get into it. Let's talk about it. Okay. Jessica's early years. From the very beginning. (laughs) According to the Dune Encyclopedia, Jessica was born in the year 10,154 after Guild. Uh, She is... By my count, 14 years younger than Duke Leto. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time of Dune, she's about, uh, she's like late 30s, basically. Right. Now, we don't know a whole lot about <laughs> Jessica's childhood. So right. thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Hope you stay Thanks tuned for, listening, guys. for part yeah. two. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be on your feeds right. whenever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no. Okay. You guys can blame the Benny Jesser for that terrible joke because they keep <laughs> all of the early history of their sisters a secret. Right. It's all wrapped up in this Benny Jesser mystery. And we don't know a ton about Jessica's very, very early 
childhood. Right. But there are some dots that we can connect and make some educated guesses about. Mm -hmm. So the first dot is that we know that Jessica was a planned child. Right. As part of the Benny Gesserit breeding program that we all know about. Right. I mean, Moheim explains basically that Paul is this potential Kwisatz Haderach, right? Yeah. And from the first book, we know that the Kwisatz Haderach is a project that spanned tens of dozens of generations of careful planning and genetics and eugenics and figuring out how they're going to get to this Kwisatz Haderach super being. And to that end, if Jessica was supposed to initially be the mother to the daughter who would then marry Fade Rautha or breed with Fade Rautha. Yeah. Jessica's not just some rando lady. <laughs> she is not a happenstance mother. She is part of this plan. Oh, yeah. And honestly, I kind of get the impression through what we learn about the Bene Gesserit that Jessica's birth in particular was probably planned, I mean, possibly hundreds of years before her birth. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, the Benny Gesserit, as we know, are long-term thinkers. <laughs> right. They're long-term planners. They don't make plans for one lifetime or even two. They make plans for centuries. And I think you're totally spot on that Jessica is definitely part of that plan. Yeah. We know she was a child that was birthed in order to get to that ultimate goal right. of the Kwisatz Haderach. Yeah, it's kind of, it's so stressful trying to plan a party, though, with some Bene Gesserits, because you're like, hey, how's next weekend look for you? And they go, hey, yeah, that's busy. Sorry, we're booked out for the next 650 years, uh, but we can right. do Sunday in the year 2700. Right. Damn it. Right, right. How's the 17th? Uh, yeah, of December? or No, oh. in 2700. Oh, uh, gosh, I'll probably be dead. They're like, yeah, so will we. But the party's going to be great. <laughs> right, right. What about your great-great-grandchildren? Are they ready to throw down or what? Are they free that weekend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, long-term planning. It's really tough to go on a date with a Benny Jesuit. <laughs> now, if we know that Jessica was planned right. as part of the breeding program, the next natural question here is, okay, so... Who were her parents? Right. Who were the two people that came together as part of this plan to give birth to Jessica? Right. And this is where things get a little more hazy. Yeah. Yes and no. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> this is one of the solid facts we get. True. Like, her dad is Baron Harkonnen, right? Yes. Again, we said we'd spoil the first book. There you go. <laughs> yeah. We find out Paul is like, yo, your dad's Baron Harkonnen. And Jessica's like, ah, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Yeah. And side note, we didn't actually get that in the movie, huh? That didn't really... Yeah. Interesting. I think they're probably just going to save it as a bigger reveal in part two. That's a good thought, yeah. But I didn't notice it was missing while watching the movie, and it wasn't until after that we sort of scripted our deep dive episode and did some research, and I rewatched it, that I was like, hey, wait a second. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they broke up that conversation that Paul has in the book, into two pieces, where first he tells her after Yui's scene that he knows she's pregnant. That normally happened in the still tent. Right. But whatever. Yeah. yeah, maybe we'll get that in part two. But that is one of the solid facts we know. Baron Vladimir Harkonnen is Jessica's father. So who's the mom? Who's the mama boo? Mm. This is where things get a little dicey. <laughs> yup. 
And uh, I'm just going to say it's not our fault. It's because <laughs> Dune Cannon is so fucking messy. Yeah. Yep. So we're going to try and unspool this thread as cleanly as possible for you. Yeah. A character in one of the sequel books, we're being intentionally vague to avoid spoilers here, but a character in one of the sequel books says, quote, it'll be in their breeding records, Jessica out of Tanidia Neris by the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Right. Yeah. Okay. Tanidia Neris. Yeah. We have a name. Seemingly, we have a name for her mother. If only it were that simple. (laughs) And we talked about this. To be clear, we talked about this in our Gaius Helen Moheim episode. Right. So we'll we'll kind of keep this briefer, but it is a debated topic. Yes. Like this is probably one of the more contentious things in Dune. Because we have that name, Tanidia Neris. Great. But in 1984, McNelly and the other authors of the Dune Encyclopedia basically wrote In all sorts of articles, it's all throughout the Dune Encyclopedia, that Gaius Helen Moheim was using the pseudonym Tanidia Neris when she seduced Baron Harkonnen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fine. I mean, that's, again, it's a Dune Encyclopedia assertion. This is not primary canon. This We kind of consider it secondary canon. But McNelly then admitted that that was one of the details that Frank Herbert was kind of vocally against. Yeah. He was like, nah, it's not Gaius Helen Moheim. It's someone else. So because of Frank's attitude, a lot of people, us included, I think I, I speak for both of us when I say... You do. Yeah. We don't believe that that is the case simply for the fact that it makes the world, the universe, much smaller. And it's more interesting to think about this woman who's out there in in the universe you know rather than just every character we meet is significant for significance sake yeah but then but then but then brian herbert comes along right one more detail that we're gonna bring up just so none of y'all call our asses out about this yeah man it's messy brian herbert in his prequel and sequel series is in the late 90s and still today has asserted that same thing. Gaius Helen Moheim is Jessica's mother. And I'm basing that on Frank's notes, or I'm basing a lot of my writing on Frank's notes. That's the sort of claim. Right. So it is possible that after that conversation back in the 80s with McNelly, that Frank Herbert changed his mind and said, you know what? Actually, that is kind of a fun twist. Let's do it. But we don't know for sure. So long, long, long story short, it's not settled. Right. So you can believe what you want. It, she either is or isn't Gaius Helen. We kind of believe she. it's not. It's someone else. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> Moving on. Settled. Tanidia Neris. Who's she? Don't know. Haven't met her. Mystery. She's whoever you want her to be, baby. She's the friends we made along the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So whoever Jessica's mother may or may not be, let's talk about her early years at the Benny Gesserit School. Because Jessica spent her first 14-ish years at the school on Wallach 9, the Benny Gesserit home planet where the school is located. Right. Moheim actually references this in the very first chapter of Dune. Quote, The lady Jessica was my serving wench, lad, for 14 years at school. End quote. Right, right. Harsh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's responding to, because Paul's like, don't treat my mom like a serving wench. Yeah. And 
Moheim's like she's she's clapping back at Paul. Yeah, it's a clapback. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> Moheim, famous for her sass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a clapback to Paul's sort of obstinance in that first moment when he meets her. Right. But what Moheim is really getting at is that she was one of Lady Jessica's teachers during those first 14 years that Jessica spent training at the school. Right. And we actually get a passage just a few chapters later in Dune that speaks to this as well. Quote, A skinny girl with the hair color of bronze, her body tortured by the winds of puberty, had entered the study of the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Moheim, proctor superior of the Benny Gesserit School on Wallach 9. End quote. Right. So just another confirmation right here directly from the Dune book that Jessica trained under Moheim during her early years at the Benny Gesserit School. Right. On Wallach 9. Now, obviously, that's a very big gap in our knowledge. Right. That's just like a giant chunk of time. Right. Did she have his boyfriend? Did she have a high school boyfriend? Like, we don't know. I don't know. Favorite band? Did she have posters of her favorite band up in her bedroom? Yeah. There's a lot of unknowns, right? We can a little bit, again, you said it perfectly earlier, make some educated guesses here. Because the Dune Encyclopedia goes pretty deep into the Bene Gesserit training program and kind of how Bene Gesserit sisters are generally raised and how they're generally prepared. Yeah. We're only going to touch on these details briefly because we are planning a Bene Gesserit episode and that's going to go more deeply into all of this. But we don't have any solid reasons to think that Jessica's experience was too different from maybe this general experience. Exactly. Yeah. For all intents and purposes... Jessica probably had the same schooling that many of her other Benny Gesserit students did. Right. Probably. Yeah. And so to kind of break down that schooling a bit further, just to give us some context and to put ourselves in teenage Jessica's shoes and try to think back on what she might be experiencing on Wallach 9. Right. The encyclopedia enlightens us about some of the training plans. And what it tells us is that the Benny Gesserit training plan overall over these years of a young girl's life was a series of progressive self-control exercises that spanned roughly a decade, right? which, quote, give the student power to control herself mentally, physically, and psychologically, and to control others, end quote. <laughs> and from what we know of the Bene Gesserit, that tracks. Right. I was going to say, what a last few words there. <laughs> yeah, and oh, yeah. To control Self-control. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then you also can control other people. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Manipulative 10-year-olds. All right. It's like a brand new yoga studio opening in Brooklyn <laughs> and selling itself as control yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, and others. <laughs> and control right? other people. Like You're kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This all makes sense for a yoga Sorry, course. What was that last fucking part? <laughs> I don't know how Savasana is supposed to get that person to do what I want them to, but that's pretty good. Sold. Done. I'll see you there in the morning. That, that's taking the soul part of soul cycle a little too literally, you know? Like, are we capturing souls? What the fuck? Yes, I'm here for the souls. <laughs> soul cycle's like, that's not... You didn't read very carefully. Now, when it comes to self-control physically... The word that comes to my mind is pranabindu. Oh, yeah. It's the training method that is thrown around fairly often. The pranabindu training, we're told by the Dune Encyclopedia, begins ideally during the first year of life. So, Yikes. You know, 
you have to picture what kind of training does a less than a year old baby doing but uh right man they figured it out i guess and we get this little passage that kind of yeah elaborates a little bit quote thus a small child would spend hours learning the many languages in use in her culture and later spend more hours sitting rock still lowering her body temperature and slowing her heartbeat moving one muscle at a time as she cataloged the stimulus response pattern of her body end quote a one-year-old, by the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what? I mean, I don't know. I can't. I can't remember that class in my childhood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like I had silence, sustained reading. I definitely had that. Uh-huh. That's kind of close. I have that too. But uh, yeah. Right. No, uh, no sitting rock still, lowering my body temperature. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't remember cataloging the stimulus response pattern of my body. No. I mean, I started that in my late 20s. Like, that's, <laughs> this is way early. <laughs> yeah. Is that just a fancy way of saying meditation? Eh, sure. You know, you know, when in meditation, they're like, feel every part of your body. Right. And then in meditation, they're like, lower your body temperature now. <laughs> Now control the person sitting next to you. <laughs> Slow your heartbeat. Make them do a backflip. <laughs> <laughs> That's very silly. We then get a passage that may or may not kind of reflect the final three years of that decade-long program, which, again, would be Jessica, approximately age 7 to 10-ish, right? Yeah. Quote, a candidate enters a series of courses teaching the characteristics of mob behavior. For example, history, politics, anthropology, and mythology. Unless a woman is to be a political determiner when she graduates or is being groomed for political roles within the order, these courses are theoretical. End quote. So the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood does have these kind of different aims for their young acolytes. They have these different roles that they might, different jobs within the sisterhood right right we will talk about jessica's prescribed purpose but personally you know reading that this idea of studying history politics anthropology knowing that lady jessica is part of this breeding program and was going to be partnered with if not just momentarily partnered with duke leto atreides i do kind of personally suspect that these courses for her were more practical yeah because of course maneuvering within the political landscape would have been important for her. Yeah, I agree. It was definitely probably much more practical teachings for her, considering what she goes on and does later in life Right. as Duke Leto's partner and concubine and one of his closest advisors. Right. She obviously is an actor within the political machinations of both the Bene Gesserit's plan and the Imperium. Yeah, she's smart. Again, she's real smart. Right. Now, like we know from Moheim's quote earlier, Jessica would have been in school under her tutelage until around 14-ish. Right. And that leaves quite a bit of a gap between that age where she would have maybe graduated from school and her finally meeting Leto and then eventually later giving birth to Paul. Put a pin in that thought for just a second because we do have some theories that we're going to circle back to on what might have happened in that gap. Right. But let's talk about that fateful meeting with Duke Leto. So if we can fast forward a couple of years, the Dune Encyclopedia actually tells us the story of how Jessica was brought before Duke Leto Atreides, a young, handsome, strapping lad. (laughs) Yeah. And because the story 
is so incredible, we are just going to read the entire quote to you. Right. In 10,175 AG, one of the Duke's buyers, after careful investigation by the Mentat Lufir Hawat, brought the Duke a present from the Beni Gesserit School on Kaladin. Her name was Jessica, and she had been offered by the headmistress at the school as a bound concubine for the Duke's household. The Duke had no concubine in Castle Kaladin at the time. He had a habit of selling his concubines their own contracts after a short time, usually for a penny. End quote. Dude. My guy. Outstanding, sir. <laughs> yeah. Just another reason to love Duke Leto Atreides. Now, we do get this little, like, aside that he would pretty regularly fire the guy who brought him concubines. Uh, <laughs> It's like, this is the other side of Duke Leto, because he's, he's a human. He is a multifaceted character who's got good and bad. If the buyer, or like if the guy bringing him concubines brought him someone who was like not to his liking, he would just fire the, the buyer, you know? Yeah. So this leads us into perhaps the juiciest bit of writing that we're going to get here. Yeah. Okay. Quote, It was thus, with some trepidation that the latest buyer introduced Jessica to Leto and discreetly removed himself from their presence. What took place between the Duke and the concubine during the next few hours is unknown. Hello. But when the Duke arrived for his meal a few hours later, so hungry, he's so hungry, <laughs> he did so with the new concubine on his arm. A privilege never granted any other concubine. Hello. And during the dinner... He introduced Jessica in the table conversation. End quote. Woo! My gosh. Goddamn. <laughs> oh my gosh. What happened there? And you know what? After that, so, you know, Duke Leto, known for firing his buyers, he talks to the buyer. He's like, but you're not my buyer anymore. And the guy's like, oh no. And Duke Leto's like, and this is real. Duke Leto went, because I don't need a buyer anymore. I'm done with concubines. I found the one. Found the one, bro. You you hooked me up. Incredible. In fact, do you want to run all trade for my planet now? <laughs> <laughs> and he promoted the dude. Wow. For introducing Jessica. And suspicious, five months later, Jessica was pregnant. So might hint a little bit at what happened during those uh, right. hours. <laughs> hours together alone. Wow. Yeah. What an incredible story. <laughs> This totally tracks for the Duke. Of course, he'd be out here setting concubines free. Right. His firing of shitty buyers also tracks. Indeed. My guy wants everyone to be doing their best work. And it's so amazing that whatever transpired between those two when they first met, it's clear that there was a deep love and affection from the very beginning. And that the Duke, who turned away countless concubines, fell for Jessica. Yeah. That's kind of a sweet story. It's adorable. You know, it, it's better than we met on galactic Tinder. <laughs> right. So we both swiped right. <laughs> I swiped right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So from that passage that we were just talking about and kind of cross-referencing Jessica's birth date, Jessica would have been about 21 at this time when she's brought to Duke Leto. This does leave kind of a seven-year gap between the school on Wallach 9 under Moheim and being on Caladan on the kind of local 
Benny Gesserit school. But I don't know. Maybe she was doing like a work study. <laughs> maybe she was taking a gap seven years. I don't know. <laughs> options. A seven year sabbatical seven year to sabbatical. enjoy the beautiful oceans of Gallatin. She was tired. She had to lower her body temperature every day. Fair. <laughs> until she was 14. Totally fair. Totally fair. Yeah, I, I like the idea that she maybe did a some sort of post-schooling work study or internship at the school. Because she's clearly still at a like branch academy, right? Right, right. She's on like the Caledon branch of the Benny Gesserit School. Right. So, you know, m- maybe she's just working there as like a TA or uh, <laughs> is continuing her schooling in some way through some sort of work study or internship program there. But it's interesting that uh, we don't know what exactly happened within those years from her graduating from Wallach 9 and ending up at the Kaladin branch. Right. Now, moving forward in the timeline, we do know the exact year of Paul's birth. Right. 10,175. And that, as we know, is 15 years before the first pages of Dune. Right. And from what we know from the encyclopedia and from our reading of Dune, we know that Jessica actively trained Paul in the ways of the Bene Gesserit skills. That's why Paul can use the voice. We saw it in the movie. We had that really cute scene where she tells him to make her hand over the water. Mom, I just woke up. (laughs) (laughs) Mom, I just woke up. So good. Yeah. It's clear that Jessica took a very active role in Paul's training. And of course, in the book itself, we have confirmation of this. We get this quote. She had trained him in the Bene Gesserit way in the minutia of observation, end quote. Right. And other confirmations we are sprinkled throughout the book as well. There's another quote. Right. You've been training him in the way. I've seen the signs of it, end quote. So there it is. Twice we've been told that Jessica trained Paul. So we can assume that the next 15 years of her life, from the moment Paul is born to the start of Dune, Jessica spends her time in Kaladin with her duke, and continues to serve both the Bene Gesserit, but also trains her son secretly in the Bene Gesserit ways. Moheim's looking at Paul. She's like, I think he's observing minutia. <laughs> I'm observing hey. the minutia that he's observing minutia. <laughs> Paul's like, you fucking see this minutia? It's crazy. <laughs> I'm observing it so much. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of all we have for that that chunk of time. Yeah. I do kind of love that there are some unanswered questions. Um, technically, I guess it's worth mentioning that Brian Herbert like wrote a whole book yeah. <laughs> exploring that. But again, we're just focusing on uh, Frank's writings and the Dune Encyclopedia for now. So let's jump forward. Jessica's life during Dune. That's right. I've heard of it. Yeah. And this part we know very well, right. <laughs> considering we have hundreds and hundreds of pages with her right. inside her head. As we journey through Dune together. So, for the sake of your sanity and ours. We will be reading every page that she is on (laughs) in its entirety. Because it's all great. (laughs) Yes, every mention of Jessica we will be reading out loud. And then on page three. Yeah, this is going to be a 14-hour episode. So, enjoy. (laughs) It's like a book fan cam of Jessica. (laughs) Where we only read the pages that she's on. One of those weird YouTube videos where they're like, B-movie, but only when this character's on screen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Right. 
we joke, but don't tempt us to actually do that. We joke. <laughs> what we're actually going to do is we're assuming you have read the book right. and that you have watched the movie. If you haven't, uh, there is a spoiler warning up top, so sorry for <laughs> spoiling a ton what, of shit. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. We assume you have read those things and watched those things. And instead of retreading a bunch of ground that we've covered in depth on this podcast many times, right? what we're going to do is focus on just the very few key moments in Dune that reveal more about Jessica and her character, and that also define her life forever moving forward. Right. Because there are obviously a couple of very key things that happen on Arrakis that change not only the universe forever, but Jessica's own life as well. And we wanted to just touch on those briefly. So the first key moment that really shifts her life and kind of defines this journey that she's going on with House Atreides is leaving Kaladin. Yeah. Which, you know... Happens real early, real early in the book. <laughs> Moving to Arrakis. Now, obviously, this is kind of a life-changing moment for everybody involved. Pretty much every single... Some people's lives change in that they die. Some people's <laughs> lives change in that they become godhead messiahs. You know. Right. Jessica had spent, of course, 14, 15 years living on Kaladin with House Atreides, right? But... Being at the Bene Gesserit school on Kaladin before, I imagine she loves the planet. And we do get a sense, we get uh, a little quote here that highlights that she's not necessarily super happy to be on one of the most brutal planets in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> quote, she shuddered, glanced at the slit windows high overhead. It was still early afternoon here, and in these latitudes, the sky looked black and cold, so much darker than the warm blue of Kaladin. A pang of homesickness throbbed through her. End quote. Wow. Feels like New York in the winter. <laughs> Early afternoon and it's 4 p.m. and night. it's dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Daylight savings is dumb. <laughs> it's so dumb. I hate it. It is an understatement to say that this move to Arrakis changed the trajectory of her life. I mean... A little bit, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh -huh. But to be clear... And to kind of put it in words, this move sets off a series of events that change everything right. forever. Right. Just to list out a couple of things. Sure. The death of her partner and lover, Duke Leto. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. The awakening of her son as the legendary Kwisatz Tatarak, <laughs> the end game of hundreds of years of Benny Gesserit planning. It's strange. That happens. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> yeah. Then, of course, her years among the Fremen in the desert as well as taking on the mantle as their reverend mother and her own transformation, which we're going to touch on a little bit later on. Right. And then, of course, giving birth to Alia, right. her pre-born daughter, something she has never encountered in her life. Yeah. Th there's no take-backsies on any of those things. <laughs> no kidding. I'm sure she tried multiple times. Yeah. I mean, again, some of this is just so devastating, the idea of, losing such an important person and then all she has left is Paul and we see that distance kind of grow between them throughout the journey as he awakens to his powers and maybe develops that resentment towards the Bene Gesserit for the Missionaria Protectiva and there's just so much that she's going through. Right. So you're right. I mean, <laughs> these things are one-way streets, all of them. We also get this scene in the still tent and 
it's one of the biggest moments in the first third of Dune. I mean, it literally ends the first of the three kind of sections. Yeah. And in the movie, of course, and we'll talk about it, it's one of the most emotionally impactful moments in the movie. Agree. Some massive bombshells are dropped in this scene. And she's, you know, literally dealing with the fact that she now knows, you know, the love of her life is dead. They get the signet ring from Yui's pack and they go, okay, we get what happened. Unbearably sad. In addition to the fact that Paul very casually is like awakening as Neo from the Matrix. <laughs> like he's, he's like space tripping and she's just trying to hold on to something familiar and nothing is there for her. It's so sad. Right. Mom, it's all computer code. <laughs> I can do Kung Fu, Mom. <laughs> She's like, show me. I can do Kung Fu. <laughs> She's like, yeah, dude, I taught you the weirding way. No one makes the first jump, Paul. <laughs> no one makes the first jump. Yeah. I mean, watching her son in this tent sort of trip through time and space, she realizes that he is crossing a threshold that she can no longer understand. Right, right. Her Benny Gesserit training, all of her training has not prepared her for this moment. There's this great quote. She felt exposed and naked before him, realizing then that he saw her with eyes from which little could be hidden. And that, she knew, was the basis of her fear. End quote. Oh, that's... It's kind of that moment where a parent sees their child grow up. Yeah. And I also immediately am thinking about the Bene Gesserit's reliance on secrecy, right? Only letting people know what you have to is a means of control something she's been studying her whole life literally manipulative 10 year old over here and thus someone who can see everything and who you cannot hide things from is unspeakably dangerous right if all of your tool set is knowing how to withhold and knowing how to shy away from full disclosure you know yeah absolutely I mean, that, that language there, she felt naked before him, nothing could be hidden. That's scary. Yeah. She's realizing his powers have grown far beyond her own. And then if that wasn't bombshell enough, the <laughs> right. death of her lover, her son being the legendary Kwisatz Haderach, he then turns to her and drops a huge revelation about her true parentage, the thing we've already touched on earlier in the episode. He reveals to her that the Baron Harkonnen the enemy of the Atreides yeah. is her dad. Ugh. Quote, you're the Baron's own daughter, he said, and watched the way she pressed her hands to her mouth. The Baron sampled many pleasures in his youth and once permitted himself to be seduced. But it was for the genetic purposes of the Bene Gesserit by one of you. End quote. One of you. May or may not be Moheim. We already right, touched right. on that. <laughs> One of you. Gosh, what alienating language, what distancing language that Paul is using in this moment. Yeah. And we will talk about the movie, but it really does bring to mind Paul and Jessica on that like tarmac in the movie where there's that fog between them, you know? Yes. Yep. That mental that psychic distance. distance. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, God, the writing is so good. So good. It's wild stuff. I think Frank Herbert's a good writer. <laughs> it This tent scene is one of the most pivotal, both in the movie and in the book. And just sort of putting myself in Jessica's shoes here, can you just imagine 
having these bombshells after bombshells dropped on you in this moment. Right. A moment in which you've already lost everything. Arakeen has been attacked. Right. You're out on the run with your son. You don't know where any of your allies are. You're already in a very vulnerable place. And then just having these utterly earth-shattering things revealed to you. Right. I mean, I can't imagine it. How, how it would even destroy your own sense of self, right? Right. I mean, like Jessica learning that she is part Harkonnen, right. you know? Yeah. It's like learning you're part Voldemort. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, I have been wondering who my father is. And uh, <laughs> having no nose did seem like a maybe a giveaway, but it was really only when I went... <laughs> Man, what an icon. What an icon. Icon. Ray finds. Also, shout out to one of our older jokes where Moheim says, the maternal grandfather who shall not be named. And I, I joked that it was Voldemort. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Was that intentional? Yes. It was a callback to. Fucking clever dude. <laughs> Next up, we have this moment. Couldn't not talk about it. Jessica becoming a full reverend mother among the Fremen. Yeah. Ugh, huge. Huge. So we have this water of life ceremony, which, again, rereading that chapter, it's like, man, things are going ahead full steam. Here's the deadly poison. It's in my mouth. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's such a wild to think about, you know, Chani like squeezes the bag. Right, <laughs> right gulps down all the poison johnny having too much fun squeezing the bag by the way but uh she's like this is how i get rid of the in-laws <laughs> up to this point jessica is simply a benny Gesserit adept not to underplay like two or three decades of literal training beyond what you can even imagine right but she does not yet have other memory she does not yet have the full capabilities of a reverend mother yeah and this ceremony that kind of puts her into that capability, gives her that power, awakens those memories, does two things. There's the sort of effect on her, and there's the effect on uh, not her. <laughs> the her effect is, oh, look, I remember back to Earth like 50,000 years ago. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. But also, and remembering Sister Romalo's, like, lover. Virulent. Was, mm. Virulent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. And, of course, there's the effect on Alia, who was still in the womb, creating a pre-born Reverend Mother. A Reverend Mother awoken in the womb before any kind of consciousness is even wow. formed. Yeah. Yeah. Wild stuff. Life-changing, not just for Jessica in this moment, but for her daughter as well. Right. Alia will never be the same as other children. She is a fully-fledged conscious person before she is even born as a result of this ceremony. And so Jessica's life as a mother has changed forever. Right. Not the baby she expected. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, I guess babies never are, you know? But Oh, that's true. Babies aren't, also aren't pre-born, to my knowledge. Yeah, and most like one-year-olds are not like, I was there at the cradle of life. You're like, okay. <laughs> right. Your one-year-old is like, I remember building Stonehenge. <laughs> You're the like, what fuck? the fuck? Also, quickly, tell me what it's for. Yeah, what, what, what is, was it aliens? <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say again? 
So I uh, had a kind of conversation with our kid today. <laughs> right. Honey. <laughs> All right, moving on. Let's fast forward to the end of Dune. Yeah. Because one other very significant moment takes place in Jessica's life. Right. And that is the final chapter, the climactic final chapter of Dune. Lady Jessica watches her son, well, first kill a guy, yeah. like stab a dude. Stab him to death, yeah. <laughs> Which is maybe not out of the ordinary at this point. They've spent many years in the desert fighting our Conans. It's true. What is out of the ordinary is watching her son absolutely dunk on the emperor of the known universe. <laughs> right, uh-huh. And then take this man for everything he's worth, his shorts and his throne. Right. Incredible stuff. He took his fresh galactic emperor kicks. He was like, those don't look creased. They're mine now. Right. Are those Air Jordans? They're my Jordans now. <laughs> Shaddam's like, not my Air Jordans. Irulan's like, I can't believe he took his Air Jordans. It's wild. Exactly. The Spacing Guild's like, sheesh. <laughs> I think we're re remembering that chapter a little inaccurately, but what? I digress. No. That's how it happened. <laughs> now, these last few years in the desert have not been kind to Jessica's relationship with her son. Right. There's been a little bit of animosity. There's been a little bit of drifting apart as his legend grows, as he leans into being the Messiah for the Fremen, into the thing that the Missionaria Protectiva planned for all those years ago. Right. And Jessica is cautious. She's like, what? you know, like, I see where your plan is. She's supportive, but is also much more cautious than Paul. They have that disagreement that we talked about in one of our book club episodes, where Jessica is sort of scolding him for leaning too hard into the religion. And Paul is like, right. you did this. You made me this way. I'm going to lean into right. it. So while there is still love and affection and support for each other, there has been a slow drifting apart between mother and son. Which certainly wasn't helped by Paul awakening as the one fully after his coma. Exactly. Because again, in that moment, Paul is now seeing more than she can even see. And so her wisdom, her ability to give him advice kind of becomes moot. And I imagine after nearly 20 years of raising someone, for them to suddenly move past you so kind of violently. Yeah. It really has to be traumatic. Right. He didn't even go off to college. You know, there's no smooth college transition where you get some time apart. <laughs> right. He just ripped the Band-Aid off and was like, I did it. I'm the Kwisatz I don't Hatterach. need to go to college. I was in a coma for two <laughs> weeks. <laughs> She's like, dang. College did feel like a coma to me at some times. <laughs> yeah. Now, here in the final chapter, Paul does show how much he still cares for his mother, though, at the end of it all, despite all of this drifting apart that's happened these past few years. Right. At the end, he gives his mother the respite that she wants on Kaladin. Right. He asks her, what can I give you? I'm the emperor now. Right, yeah. I'm the baddest bitch in the galaxy. You want some Air Jordans? <laughs> you want these Air Jordans? <laughs> and she's like, no, pass on the Air Jordans. But, <laughs> quote, perhaps Kaladin, she said, looking at Gurney. Right. I'm not certain. I've become too much the Fremen and the Reverend Mother. I need a time of peace and stillness in which to think. That you shall have, Paul said, and anything else that Gurney or I can give you. End quote. Indeed. And so he gives her Kaladin. <laughs> have it. Yeah. A retirement planet. 
Uh huh. <laughs> Not a bad place to finally go and rest after your many brutal years on Arrakis. She kind of finally comes full circle and goes home at the end of it all. Right. And with that, she also does have some perspective on everything. Again, Jessica is a wildly intelligent person. And at this point, she's a full Reverend Mother. So she's got the the added wisdom of all of the other memories. And she ends the book for us on just one of the most iconic quotes. Yeah. And it's one that we joke about and reference sometimes with one another because we can't help but call Jessica Duke Leto's wife and Chani Paul's wife. But here's the quote. Quote, A bitter laugh escaped Jessica. Think on it, Chani. That princess will have the name, yet she'll live as less than a concubine, never to know a moment of tenderness from the man to whom she's bound. While we, Chani, we who carry the name of concubine, History will call us wives. End quote. And end Dune. End Dune. (laughs) The literal final words of Dune are from Lady Jessica. Yeah. The most important woman in this story. No kidding. Now, we're going to take a bit of a breather. Yes. But when we come back, Mm -hmm. we are going to talk all about Rebecca Ferguson's portrayal of Lady Jessica in the Denny Villeneuve film. There's been a lot of conversations online about that. We are going to share our thoughts in just a minute. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you successfully lowered your temperature, slowed your heart rates, and (laughs) controlled the people around you. Talking about Rebecca Ferguson's portrayal of Jessica in Denny Villeneuve's film. Yeah. There's been a lot of conversation about, a lot of discussion about Rebecca Ferguson's portrayal, and a lot of it's positive. And I think we are both on that side of the fence as well, you know? Yes. We have our full thoughts on the movie in our epic deep dive episode, which was like five and a half hours of recording that ended up at three and a half hours of finished material. It's insane. So if you haven't heard that yet, I guess call out of work sick and listen to it because man you'll you'll need a bottle or two of wine to get through it though so just yeah yeah warning warning you there but we can kind of rehash some of what we were thinking about there focusing in on jessica so to start off in this kind of a series of considerations abu what did you think of the casting choice Mm. i know you love talking about casting Uh, yeah, I do love talking about casting. And by that, I mean, I hate talking about casting. I've mentioned this <laughs> oh, the other before, yeah. right? I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I'm just like, always bad at casting conversations, right? Right. People are always like, who's your, who's your fan cast of Fade Rotha? Who should play it? And I'm like, I have no idea. Vin Diesel? I don't know any Vin, actors. Right. <laughs> Vin Diesel. <laughs> Tom Hanks, he's good, right? Uh, uh, Timothy Chalamet. Ah, fuck, he's already in the movie. Damn it. That's all I know. Right. Tom so Hanks. Casting is... <laughs> I think he'd crush it. He's great. He'd you'd, you'd, have so... to age him, you'd have to age him down a little bit, but no, I think he'd, age him he'd up. crush it. <laughs> Make Fade Routha in his 60s. Let's do it. So the point is, I'm bad at casting. I frankly don't even really care about casting. Sure. Going into the film, 
I had never heard of Rebecca Ferguson sure. before Dune, before learning that she was to play Lady Jessica in the movie. So I had no idea what to even expect. I don't know any of her other work. Right. And I kind of went in totally blind right. and with no opinions. Yeah. That maybe worked in my favor because I thought she absolutely crushed the role. And at least for me personally, she is now in my mind the canonical Lady Jessica. Yeah. Going forward, whenever I reread the book, I'm going to picture Rebecca Ferguson in that role. Right. So yeah. to me, that is two thumbs up. She crushed it and embodied the role just as I imagined. And yeah, I mean, as far as casting goes, I don't know. I didn't have anyone else in mind. And I thought Rebecca Ferguson did a really great job. What about you? Did you have other ideas for casting? Tom Hanks, perhaps? <laughs> You know, I'm right there with you. I feel like between you, me, and that spider creature, we would give her like 14 thumbs up. Like really just incredible job. She did great. She was amazing. Yeah. I'm I'm also not good at casting things. I mean, I've like enjoyed a little bit speculating about like Fade Rautha and that sort of thing. So I think if I'd been asked to specifically find some people, maybe I could have and maybe I would have felt good about certain things. But no, I mean right there with you. Uh, if I have seen Rebecca Ferguson in things, I don't really remember. And that's just, I don't have a great memory. So that's not super surprising. But she was great. She was amazing as the role. And I agree that now when I read about Lady Jessica, I'm kind of seeing Ferguson. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Would Lady Jessica, played by Richard Iode, be amazing? <laughs> yeah, it would be great. But no, just... Broadly, I think Rebecca Ferguson was was a spectacular fit for the role. Now, here's sort of the follow-up question to that question. Sure. She did great in the role and really embodied the character. Yeah. But coming at it as huge nerds <laughs> of the lore, of the source material, after our deep dive 10-part book club episode on the book in preparation for the movie, was Rebecca Ferguson on screen the Lady Jessica you had in mind reading the book. Do you think her portrayal was accurate to the character in the book? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yes, I do. I think, of course, it's a challenge to adapt a sort of novel to a visual medium. And with so much of Frank's writings, you'll get these, we've talked about it at length, this idea of like, it's four pages of text and only one or two sentences happens during it. It's all reflection and posturing and thinking about you'd have to do like a Sherlock Holmes style storytelling where you almost stop time and have the characters inner monologue. Yeah. And again, there just isn't time in the movie for that kind of stuff. So I look at the characteristics of Jessica, the book character you know, that she's this fiercely capable fighter. She's a deeply loving mother, devastated by the loss of Duke Leto, but also just wise and yeah. intelligent. And I, I think I, I think we see all of that on the screen. Um, could have been focused on more in certain aspects, but uh, but yeah, I, I, th I think so. Um, what, what about you? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think she did as well as she could have in a book-to-movie translation portrayal of a character. Right, right. I think the way Rebecca Ferguson played Lady Jessica was about as accurate as we could have gotten. I agree with you that 
we maybe didn't get the full scope of Jessica's character, and perhaps it would have been impossible to capture that in a two and a half hour movie. Sure. I like to think that what we got was Rebecca Ferguson capturing not the depth of Lady Jessica, but maybe the breadth of Lady Jessica. Mm, interesting. We didn't go as deep as we could yeah. into her character and her role as a Benny Jesuit and some of her inner thoughts that we know from the books. Right. But what we did get did capture her character fully in a way that you can then text your coworker after you walk out of the movie theater and be like, <laughs> I loved Lady Jessica. What's her deal? Right? Right, 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 right. And I think that in and of itself is a success in the way that she was portrayed on screen. So I think hats off to Rebecca Ferguson and Danny Villeneuve and the rest of the creative team for making sure that we got a Lady Jessica that was as close as possible to her book character, at least in my opinion. Yeah. So this kind of leads us into the next question regarding like book accuracy and Jessica as a character. There has been a lot of conversation about Jessica, the only main female character in the movie, being sort of weepy and emotional and just this kind of wreck in a lot of her scenes. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that kind of discourse? Yeah. I mean, we touched on this a little bit in our deep dive episode, and I remember when we first saw the movie and walked out of it, I remember mentioning this to you as well, just off the, off the top of my head. Right. And... I personally tend to sort of lean a bit towards agreement with the sentiment that, yeah, like, to me, it felt like there were maybe one or two too many, like, teary-eyed scenes of her, and sure, I haven't done the math and I haven't counted, but it's almost a toss-up. Like, oh, we're cutting to Jessica. Is this going to be a high-intensity emotional scene where she cries? 50-50, maybe. Sure. And to me, that just felt like a disservice to... Again, what we know, like the depth of her character from the book, it, it to me, it felt like a disservice to Lady Jessica and her abilities of control and her Benny Gesserit ways and training, which we then, of course, see in the later half of the movie in the ornithopter scene where she uses the voice. Right, right, right. The way she absolutely fucking yeah. dunks on Stilgar. <laughs> we see that deadliness in Benny Gesserit part of her come out, right. but there is a long portion of the movie where it really only cuts to Lady Jessica when things are getting emotional and when she's about to tear up. And to me, her being, again, like Dune is a sausage fest. She is one of the few, at least in the first book, she's one of the few like main primary female characters. Right. And I did feel that it was perhaps a bit too much. But at the same time, I do want to sort of couch that and disagree with the sentiment that her being emotional doesn't match her in the book. Sure. Because I do disagree with that. There is like another subtext to this conversation online where people are like, oh, they made her too emotional for the screen. Sure, yeah. They changed her character to be overly emotional. Right, right. I disagree with that. She is plenty emotional in the book. We just, earlier in the episode, listed like six fucking horrible things that happened to her on Arrakis. Right. And it would be weird to not have her cry when she learns about the death of her 16-year lover, Duke Leto. Right, The death of that beard. (laughs) Specifically, yeah. So while I'm like, yeah, it felt like a little weird that every time we're cutting to the main leading lady, she's like teary-eyed. I also disagree that 
it was a change of her character. I think there are emotional moments in the book, and there are moments where she is emotional in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps in the book she controls them, but again, we're in her head, and we understand how devastated she truly is. In a movie, you kind of have to do a bit more showing than telling. Right. And so some of that inner emotionality had to come out visually for us to see. I mean, literally, there's a scene when they're in the still tent in the book before Paul has this sort of awakening moment. He's hearing her crying in the dark. Oh, yeah. You know, like he's hearing her weeping over the loss of Duke Leto. And he's reflecting, why the fuck can't I cry? Why am I not exhibiting those emotions the way she is? So I think you're right. Like those moments happen in the book. They're not highlighted. They're not really dwelled upon. Yeah. But they certainly happen. Yeah. And I think this also, this argument also has to take into account how few scenes Lady Jessica really does have in the movie. Right. Yeah. You know, she has some of these extended scenes, but they're very few considering like how much more Paul himself gets. Still more than Piter. Still more than Piter. Still more than our boy Piter. Uh, Justice for Piter, folks. Robbed. Robbed. So that is something to take into account is we have fewer scenes with her. We don't have the dinner scene. We don't have the Thufir one-on-one confrontation. We didn't meet Esmar. We didn't meet Esmar too in the dinner scene. So... Right, how how she like dunks on that banker in the dinner scene in the book, right? <laughs> so like good. calls his ass out. Uh, That's a powerful Jessica moment that we're missing in the movie. Yeah. So you have to also take into account that we know Jessica is a much more powerful and deadly character in the book because we have so much more time to spend with her. Right. Yes. In the movie, we have these limited scenes, and they're limited even further by only being the emotional scenes. Right. Until later when she has to fight the Harkonnens and Stilgar. So I don't know. I feel like I'm waffling sort of back and forth and walking back what I said earlier. So maybe I am still a little undecided on this, but sure, I can see where people are coming from Yeah, yeah. as far as, oh, she's too emo- there's too much crying There's for a female character. Like, why would they lean on her to be the emotional one? Uh, I can understand that sentiment and maybe feel some of it as well, but I do disagree that it's a change of her character because I don't think it is. It is true to Jessica in the book. Yeah. I've talked plenty. Sure. There's more to be said, though, because I I just scrolled down and saw your notes on this section. <laughs> you you have things to say, so I'll let you get your feelings out about this. <laughs> okay. Is this a safe place? Is this a safe space? Uh, <laughs> yes. You're like, no. No, in fact, it isn't. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, anything I disagree with, I'll cut out so you agree with me in the final <laughs> edit, but... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Wow, it's interesting how the last half of the episode only had a boo. Uh, <laughs> I agree. I, I'm basically on the same page as you. There is a broad problem, of course, in Hollywood of mostly male writers and mostly male writers writing characters, female characters who are only definable by their relationships to men who embody this sort of archetype of emotional because emotions need to happen and you need something that the main guy can be like, ah, but I'm tough and stoic. Like, that's such a fucking problem. In movies, I get it. Like, that's, it makes perfect sense. But in the same ways that, like, Dune isn't a white savior story, I think it's unfair to look at any footage of the leading lady crying and going, oh, they're doing it again. (laughs) They're, you know, I think that if you look at what's happening in the movie, really to your point, the scenes that we're given are humanizing the cast because otherwise you have all of this terrible shit happens to House Atreides. Duke Leto's fucking dead. 
Thufir's gone. Don't know where he is. Gurney's battling people at nighttime. Duncan Idaho GTA'd an ornithopter and is off <laughs> bleeding and fighting and killing and stuff. Yeah. So then you have the two emotional characters who we are kind of riding along with. And it is Paul and Jessica, and they both cry and are emotional. So I don't necessarily draw issue with the movie's depiction. I understand what people are saying, and you're totally right, that it really is kind of a coin flip when you cut to Jessica. It's like, okay, is she going to be emotional? But also, as we've covered, this is the most emotional time in her life by a margin. Oh, yeah. Like, this is the most traumatizing portion of her if she was crying in every scene it would be justifiable yes so there is that side of it and i think exactly to your point about we just don't have time with her time that we do have in the book we just don't see that in the movie is a really good point because you know in the book we get jessica rattling through fear how it's old we get (laughs) jessica being a deep caring sympathetic advisor to dr yui and we get jessica in all these great moments that we just don't get in the movie and something that i wanted to bring up is that it is possible that a situation like this would be the intention of the depiction of jessica is as an emotional character i think it's clear that the writers villeneuve and ferguson all understand everything there is to know about jessica and if anything the only problem here is that we just aren't given enough time with her as a character to make other conclusions about her like you know i I saw a picture of her and yui standing by a window and this is i guess a cut scene that scene alone could have really shifted our perspective on her as a character looking only at the movie right yeah so all of that is to say i i'm kind of on the fence too (laughs) like i get it But also, I don't think that this is a case of that in the same way that this isn't really a white savior story. Yeah. Maybe I just agree. I, You know, we had Elaine on as a guest after the movie came out, and I thought Elaine brought up a really, really good point, which is that there were a couple of lines that could have been in the movie that weren't that I think would have made a big difference. And the one that Elaine brought up that I loved was, and I'm not sure in the exact wording, but... It was in the Jameis challenge when Jameis says, yo, I'm going to fucking fight. <laughs> I'm going to fight uh, Jessica. And Paul's like, I'll be her champion. And Jessica, this is exactly it. This <laughs> and Jessica goes, I'm my own champion or I'll be my own. I am my own champion. I am yeah. my own champion. Something like that. I think that was a huge missed opportunity at the end there. Yeah. Right. It's almost weird that she doesn't step up to protect her son in that moment. Right. She has more training than her son does. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It's true. So, yeah, I think there were opportunities there in maybe rounding out the depth of Jessica's character. But again, like, we don't even fucking get Piter yeah. at all. We don't get Yui at all. We don't really get to spend time with Thufir. The movie is already so lean with the characters that it does spend time with. To be like, oh, I wish there was more time with Jessica to better understand her character. Yeah. Uh-huh. Of course. We want the six-hour version. Right. <laughs> Oh, my God. Release the Snyder Dune. <laughs> we as a Dune community need to figure out that branding, though. Like, what are we calling it? The the Denny Cut? Release the hashtag? Denny Cut sounds like a thing you'd say at the barber. You're like, give me that Denny Cut. <laughs> <laughs> 
he's like, yeah. And he just shaves your head because he's a hard Conan barber. <laughs> he only knows one haircut and it's to shave your head. Yeah. But the cinematography on that shaved head is great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So there you go. Th- those are our messy thoughts. I wanted to include that because that's been such a big part of the conversation online about Jessica. And yeah, yeah. It would feel weird not to bring that up. But I think both of us are sort of conflicted and I think have landed somewhere in the middle on that. But yeah, yeah, those are our messy thoughts, folks. (laughs) There you go. Well, yeah, let's clean it up. Here's a solid question. Abu. Yes. What was Lady Jessica's, in your opinion, what was Lady Jessica's best scene in the movie? This one was an easy one for me. It's that ornithopter scene where Jessica utterly wrecks those Harkonnen guards with a pitch-perfect use of the voice. So good. It's just so good. It's the first time in the movie where you're like, oh, she can fight. Yeah. Because she stabs a dude. Yeah. And of course, it's a life-or-death situation. She's doing everything she can to protect herself and the life of her son. But we see a clear example of just how deadly her abilities can be. Right. It's not just for forcing people to hand you a glass of water. (laughs) Right. And we see that she is very capable here of holding her own, even against these Harkonnen cards, even in a life and death situation. And I just love that at the end of this scene, uh-huh. <laughs> instead of reassuring her son, she uses this as a teaching moment, a very parent thing to do, right, right. and scolds him. Yeah. Your pitch was incorrect, right. or whatever she says. You know, like, I love that she kind of, like, rags on him for using the voice incorrectly. So good. It was a really well-acted scene, but also just the first time we see how effective Lady Jessica's Benny Gesserit training is. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was very important to include that scene. I'm glad they did. And I'm glad we saw this side of Jessica. Right. Yeah. What about you? What was your favorite scene? Uh, you know... The ornithopter scene is pretty uh, pretty great. I was thinking there's two ways to answer, right? It's like, what is the best depiction of a book scene? And what is my favorite moment of Rebecca Ferguson as Jessica scene, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. The ornithopter scene, I think, is, or, or maybe kicking Stilgar's ass, is like the best Lady Jessica the character scenes because we just see how immediately deadly she is. And it is funny that she murders three men and then scolds Paul, and Paul's like, okay, mom. Right. Like, that is, that's funny. That's a funny thing. But I think that Rebecca Ferguson as Jessica, her best scene, I think, in my opinion, is the still tent. Mm, yeah. You know, Paul is going through this breakdown. He's he's scaring her. She doesn't know what's happening. And he says, he you know, he hits her with that voice, the use of the voice. He says, get off of me. And the look of just pain and betrayal and shock and fear on Rebecca Ferguson's face that then rallied and how she then goes back to him and understands like, oh, this is my son and this is what I need to do as a mother right now, right? It was so masterful, just Rebecca Ferguson's acting in that moment. And I think also shows... (laughs) Someone just hit you with the strongest use of the voice you've experienced, and yet you then take a moment and then go back and do it again. Like, I don't know. It's a moment of courage and power that is really, really beautiful. And again, portrayed incredibly by Ferguson, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So from there, what do you think about uh, for Ferguson, uh, speaking of her? 
what do you think was kind of her best line delivery? This was a bit tougher because, again, I think she just did so great embodying the character. Sure. And I had a tough time narrowing it down. Some of the sort of honorable mention picks that I had was, of course, her scolding Paul after the Ornithopter scene. Right. That line was just so funny. Got a laugh in our theater. There's also her incredible reading of the Litany Against Fear. Right. Right, right, right. During the Gam Jabbar scene. I loved that so much as well. But I think what I'm going to go with as my answer to her best line delivery is right at the end of the movie. Right. When she decks Stilgar's ass <laughs> and has a knife to his throat. Uh-huh. <laughs> he asks her, why didn't you say you were a weirding woman? And her response kind of cheekily whispered in his ear, conversation ran short. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Uh-huh. So good. You can tell Rebecca Ferguson had fun with that line and so on brand for her to be sort of yeah. cocky in that moment. Because she does. She completely manhandles <laughs> the strongest Fremen in the room right now. Right. If you watch the movie carefully, she does like a flip. Yeah. He did not see any of that shit coming. And uh, so that's my pick. Her delivery of just that cheeky conversation ran short so good. so good yeah that's amazing what about you what was your favorite line yeah i mean that that one is pretty damn good uh there's a few good moments i i really loved again not to keep going back to the still tent but the uh you know who you are you're paul atreides you know that that whole little moment as she's sort of counseling her son through what he's going through leading up to the get off of me like that whole moment is just so rich i also really loved on the tarmac, separated by the fog, when she's explaining what the Kwisatz Haderach is, right? And she's like, a mind that can, you know, bridge space and time. Yeah. That was so epic, and you could see in that moment her belief in the Bene Gesserit vision of this chosen one. Yeah, that was really incredible. I love use the voice at breakfast, <laughs> like eating something, food still in her mouth. She's like, use the voice. Go for it. <laughs> Something so great about that. Yeah, just a lot of, I mean, a ton of good ones, but that clap back to Stilgar's is epic. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Okay, let's wrap up our discussion of Rebecca Ferguson and Lady Jessica in the movie with one final question, Leah. Sure. What are your hopes for Lady Jessica in part two? Obviously, we've only gotten part one of the movie. Part two is confirmed. Right. The entire second half of the book. What are you most excited to see in part two? I mean, there's a lot of really incredible moments in the rest of Dune that Jessica's a part of and could be really huge. I'm seeing your answers, and I don't want to double up too much, so I'll focus on a couple. No, double it up, dude. <laughs> double it up. <laughs> so her conversations with Hurrah and Alia, you know, when... When Hurrah comes to her and says, you know, Ali is being fucking weird again. And Ali is like, nah, <laughs> it's like a two year old. I think those moments are really interesting to me. And I think we'll show Jessica as the full reverend mother among the Fremen that she becomes, which I, I'm excited to see, you know, her kind of owning that role and getting that power. The water of life scene has to be amazing. You know, that has to be incredible and i'm excited to see what villeneuve does with it definitely one of the more <laughs> abstract you know we get that portion where paul you know paul is the Quisatz haderach yeah goes and sees this like place of 
blowing winds and sparks and rings of light. It's like, okay, good luck, Villeneuve. (laughs) There's the FX budget for that part of the movie. Yeah. I also, I do really want to see, before the Water of Life ceremony, there's Jessica meeting, it's Romalo, right? Is the Reverend Mother from the Fremen? Uh, Yes, Romalo, yes. Yeah, Romalo. So Jessica's meeting with the wild Reverend Mother of the Fremen. That whole dynamic of like recognizing each other's capabilities and seeing in each other the way of the Bene Gesserit, even though they have such different lives, I think is really could be really powerful and really good just in the movie. And then and then again, I've talked about it a couple of times this episode, but Paul having more and more space, like on the tarmac with Jessica, that sort of beginnings of tension of recognizing she is a part of the Bene Gesserit force, that I am no longer on the same side as my mother. My mother is my enemy, right? Yeah. That whole sentiment is so huge in the last part of Dune, the last the 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 rest of the book. Um, and I think that they've already set the stage for it in the first movie. You know, Duke Leto is telling her, will you protect him with your life? I'm not asking his mother. I'm asking the Bene Gesserit. That duality has already been established. So I'm excited to see how they play with that because Jessica is the character that we, in the book, follow her cues for how weird Paul is being, right? Right. We met Paul 40 pages ago, 600 pages ago. We've only known him for as long as we've seen the book. She's known him his whole life. (laughs) She's his mom. That's how it works. But there's an element of as he becomes weird and she's afraid of him, what does that tell us as readers? Well, she's hugely instrumental in our understanding of of all of that through her perspective and her agency. So, yeah, I'm excited to see that sort of Jessica-Paul divide. Yeah, them's my answers. What about you? Uh, Anything kind of... Yeah burning in your mind those are also my answers (laughs) yeah (laughs) i had a couple that you didn't have right right just a couple um zero no i agree fully the water of life ceremony can't wait to see how that's handled yeah that download from reverend mother romalo her transformation and to a reverend mother which we saw a glimpse of in one of paul's visions right in this first movie. Will we see the virulent lover? <laughs> we must see the virulent lover. A 20-minute sex scene. We have to see exactly how virulent <laughs> yeah. he was. Show don't tell, Veneuve. <laughs> Show don't tell, buddy. He's good at that. I trust him. Yeah. Also, there's, of course, other memory. I'm very interested to see how that's portrayed. And what comes to mind for me is that scene in The Last Jedi where Rey is looking down those infinite mirrors of herself right yeah i don't know if you recall that scene but yeah yeah that's sort of how i envision other memory like all this endless corridor of doors of other people's memories that are speaking to you i don't know it'll be interesting to see how the movie portrays it or like avatar the last airbender where he like sees in the avatar state did you watch that cartoon i have not seen avatar i know i know (laughs) cancel me folks i'm ready (laughs) i'm also really interested to see how Alia and her pre-born nature is portrayed. Sure. You know, I mentioned in our episode with Jason Concepcion that I think in part two, Alia will have to be aged up. I think it's just too weird to see a two-year-old toddler speaking in complete sentences. Right. So I'm really interested in how that's portrayed as well. And then finally, yeah, like much like you, I agree. I hoped we see that tension and divide that builds between Paul and his mother. Right. In their time in the desert, during their time with the Fremen, it'll be interesting to see how 
key that is to their relationship and how big of a role that plays in part two. Because in the book, it's there, but it, I wouldn't say it's the most critical part. So I wonder if they'll lean more into that or sort of scrub it all together and ignore that part. Yeah. I also see you have this point, and I, I think this is a great point, the Gurney-Jessica scene. Yeah. In, it's like the Cave of Birds. That confrontation. Man, that scene is so tense. Gurney nearly kills her. Yeah. Exposing her as the traitor, as he believes it, to Paul. Like, that whole scene is so electric. And then I think Timothy could eat that scene up. Like, I think he could deliver that really incredibly... He's being torn up by having to, like, convince one of his oldest friends not to murder his mom. Yeah. Like... And then Jessica as well, to see Rebecca Ferguson take a step away from Brolin and turn around and go, listen, you only made that mistake because you're so loyal and I could never punish you for that. Like, there's just so much there, but it is weird to think about that scene without the traitor subplot. Yeah, exactly. I don't don't quite know how you include that scene or capture that intensity now that the traitor subplot has been dropped from the first part of the book. So. I hope we get some version of that scene because yeah. I think it is so important and such a pivotal moment right. emotionally for all of those characters involved. It's this very tense reunion of the Atreides at that point. Right. But we'll see. Regardless, I can't wait to get more Rebecca <laughs> Ferguson and more Lady Jessica in part two. I think she did a stunning job in the first part and 100%. it's going to be great. Reverend Mother Lady Jessica. Yeah. She's going to get her... Uh, Gandalf the gray to Gandalf the white glow up in part two here. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I can't wait. (laughs) Well, to wrap up, one last question. Very important. Very vital, important question, all right? Yes. We have some unaccounted for hours between young Leto Mm -hmm. and young Jessica. Mm -hmm. Unattended. Multiple hours (laughs) alone. Come out of the room. Hair messed. Duke Leto hungry arm around this new concubine and he's done with concubine that's right folks caught feelings both of them caught feelings abu uh-huh what do you think they did in those hours oh man what do you think oh man i don't think it's off i don't think it's clear people might think it's clear i don't, I don't think, think it's, it's clear. clear look yeah the easy answer here <laughs> sure the answer we're all tempted to say sure is that they had the best sex of their lives right yeah Right. That's the easy answer. Sure. That's kind of what you were insinuating in your jokes there. Yeah. Right. But I don't think that's what happened. In fact, I think the exact opposite happened. Oh. I don't think they got within an inch of each other. (laughs) Uh No physical contact. Yeah. They probably sat, maybe had a coffee. Uh Uh-huh. And I think they just talked. Talked it out. Stone cold sober. I'm talking like just coffee. No (laughs) alcohol. Sure. Stone cold, sober, heart to heart, an intellectual chat. Sure. Never making physical contact. No hand touching. The only contact that was made was between those gorgeous eyes. They left room for Jesus, is what you're saying? They left plenty of room for Jesus, right? <laughs> room for Shai Halud, yeah. <laughs> 400 feet apart. <laughs> What's your favorite color? <laughs> what? <laughs> No, I don't like Mexican. You that you can't say that. That's rude. <laughs> That's like super racist. No, the food. The food. 
I didn't see that season. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, look, as easy as, as it is to imagine them just banging the fuck out of whatever poor bed frame was in Leto's bedroom at that time. Right, yeah. <laughs> not what happened. What really happened is that they connected deeply on an intellectual and emotional level, mm. had a conversation where both of them were just simply riveted with the other. Right. And came out of that room just electricity sparks flying in the air, right? Mm. Yeah. Like I always say, Leo. Sure. Like I have been known to say. Yeah. <laughs> if there's no sexual tension in a room, there's no point in walking in. <laughs> there was sexual tension in this room. <laughs> Non-stop. And I think Jessica won over Duke Leto with her intellect, mm -hmm. with her empathy. Sure. She matched Duke Leto word for word, and Leto did the same. He impressed Lady Jessica. She probably had the pick of any other Dukes in the Empire. Right. Right? She was inevitably yeah. going to be given as a concubine to one of the leading houses. Duke Leto's the one that impressed her. Impressed her enough. To have a son for him, too. Yeah. Again, listen, we know hundreds of years planned for her to sleep with him. Like, that's a thing, right? That That's the plan. Right. She couldn't not do that. But she didn't have to stay with him. She could have had the girl, you know, given birth to the girl, hand the girl over to the Bene Gesserits, and then, I don't know, go off to Gamont yeah. or Ikaz or, you know, one of these other planets. Yeah. She could have found some hot dude on Kaitan, but she didn't. She stayed. So, Yeah. Man, battle of the minds, um, uh, uh, yeah. meeting of the minds. What a great idea. That's beautiful. Right. So, so that's my take on what happened in those mysterious unknown hours. Sure, yeah. I'm interested to hear yours. Oof. What do you think went down between Duke Leto and Lady Jessica? Well, again, I know it's tempting to think that they, uh, you know, performed at just the peak sexual frenzy <laughs> of human capacity you know she's got her weirding way or prana bendu you can't even fathom what they did together right it, tempting tempting to say that but actually you know what i don't care how good the sex could have been i think for how hard they caught feelings i'm gonna go out on a limb here this is gonna sound dramatic but bear with me i think duke leto was like come into my room mm-hmm now that I've got you alone, uh -huh. look at my dope Pokemon card collection. <laughs> I've got some PSA 10, like, foil Gengar, and they're super, and she was just so blown away. She was like, oh, my God, he's got the cases, you know, he's got the protective. This guy has so much to give me. It's amazing. Right. Tim, I got some things to trade with you, Duke. Yeah. Oh, my God. I got some cards that you're missing. You got some cards that I'm missing. This is a match made in heaven. I have a PSA 9.9 .9 Jigglypuff or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what? Oh, my God. The fuck? Let's go out and have dinner. I've been looking for that. And talk about it. Yeah. Either that or they, they smashed. Right. And, 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 of course, by that, I mean Final Destination, no items, Fox only. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, Melee. Melee, to be clear. Not, right. GameCube controllers only. Right. Game <laughs> like the pros do. Right. It's part of the weirding way. <laughs> 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 nah, they had sex. They banged. They banged. Okay, we admitted it. <sighs> Fine. You made us do it. You made us admit it. <laughs> Send us your theories. Comedy Bar Podcast at gmail.com. Right. <laughs> what happened between Lady 
Jessica and Duke Layton. But keep it work appropriate because, you know. Yeah, sometimes I check your guys' emails at work. Don't don't get me fired. <laughs> right. All righty. Okay, that wraps up part one of our deep dive into Lady Jessica. Indeed. But of course, her role in this universe does not stop at the end of the first book. And so, in part two, we will be continuing this deep dive conversation and exploring her life and her legacy in all six of Frank Herbert's books, all the way through Chapter House Dune. And we'll be unpacking that massive impact that she has on the universe more fully in a much more deeply spoilerific fashion. <laughs> Indeed. So stay tuned for part two, folks. And remember, no room with sexual chemistry is a room you should be in. <laughs> I fucked that up. <laughs> it's just different every time. Like I always say, <laughs> uh, in rooms, there's sexual uh, always. Go. <laughs> and remember, folks. Sure. A room with no sexual... What was it? Tension. God damn it. I forgot my own As sayings. As I always let me, famously let me take it again. say. No, I swear this is a great ending. End, end <laughs> the episode on this. And remember, folks. Uh-huh. A room with no sexual tension is not a room you should be in. <laughs> I still think it's something else. <laughs> Didn't what? you say, that, like, you shouldn't go into said. it or something? <laughs> <laughs> I'll work on it. I'm workshopping it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving all of that. That's all staying in. <laughs> Perfect ending. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. What was Lady Jessica's best scene in the movie? This one was an easy one for me. Sure. It's that helicopter scene. Ornithopter? Where she... Helicopter? Utterly, oh my god! Look at this. What plan. am I? Boom. Am I even a Dune fan? Boom. <laughs> oh my god! I just lost all Dune Street cred. Oh my god! Yeah, the ornithopter scene. Yeah. <laughs> Let me take that back. <laughs>